Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series for 2018-2019. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Yes, excellent. Uh, so tonight we're going to be doing a very quick uh, survey of what Judaism has to say about and its perspectives on various stages of intervening as people uh, reach their uh, last few moments. I, but I'd like to begin with looking at the survey of the contemporary legislative landscape here in the United States. And this is an organization called Death with Dignity. And what they do is they track current legislation across all the different states where they have uh, pieces of legislation either already established or in front of the current uh, state uh, legislators um, about the permissibility of intervening in and hastening somebody's uh, death. And so you can see that already there are approximately five states uh, that have uh, death with dignity statutes on the books right now. Washington, Oregon, um, Colorado, California, and uh, Vermont over there. And there's uh, Montana is currently um, having a, a death with dignity um, is available through a court decision. And the other states are uh, wrestling with it or they have no uh, legislation currently up for grabs. And if you look down here, um, we are currently here in, in this state, there is some legislation in, in the current uh, conversations uh, among the representatives about whether there should be death with dignity permitted here in the state of Nevada. I'm sorry? Arizona, sorry, Arizona, wow. <laughs> Such a great start. Um, so let's begin uh, with a very easy question, which is when does dying begin? So I don't like to talk, I like to uh, be in conversation, so I'd like to hear from you. When do you think dying actually begins? When you stop living life to the fullest. Okay. The moment you're born. The moment you're born, okay. Conception. At conception. Is, is there a difference between Alaska uh, yes, we will unpack the distinction between medical definitions and halachic distinctions, but I want to get a preliminary sense of where we might think uh, dying begins. So one option is to think about some sort of uh, biomarker. So for example, is conception itself the beginning of, of a dying process? Is it at birth? Is it uh, once you've graduated from college, as some Jewish families might say? Is it uh, some later point in, in your life? Is it uh, perhaps maybe when you've been diagnosed with a particular terminal condition that medicine just cannot save you from, cannot cure you of? Or is it the prognosis when you have been uh, given such and such a duration statistically from uh, the, your healthcare providers? Say it's six months or maybe it's a week. When is that threshold? Uh, when dying begins. 
Or is it when medicine is no longer effective in caring for you, uh, much less curing for you? So is it outside of the body and more about the technologies that are available to attend to you? When does dying begin? It is a social construct. No matter how you define it, it is what we uh, as a society think it might be. And Judaism, like every other society, has wrestled with this question of when dying begins. And it's come up with two major concepts. One is trefa, and the other one is a goses. The trefa you might think of as being associated with food, treif food. Uh, it also has a medical an analogy, which is uh, that this is an individual who is torn with some sort of terminal illness. It is when you have been diagnosed with a terminal illness. And that, uh, that is distinct from the goses, whose demise is deemed to be imminent. And classically, the goses is understood to be the last 72 hours of somebody's life, that your healthcare providers anticipate that you will survive no longer than three days. You are then considered a goses. Why are these categories important? They're important because uh, they allow certain kinds of interventions to occur uh, and others not. If you fall in the category of a trefa, you are allowed to engage in unusual medical experiments. You are allowed to avail yourself to be a participant in experimentations, and you are allowed to let healthcare providers intervene in and on your body. This is not so with a goses. In a goses, healthcare providers are prohibited from doing anything that might hasten the ultimate demise, and also they are prohibited from prolonging the dying process. Yes? So this is discussions within the halachic literature, correct? Yes. So these are two really important categories then where you would fall. So if you are a patient and you still have hope for at least enduring beyond the next three days, you would like not to be categorized as a goses because once you are put into this goses, you're no longer allowed to participate in experiments or have uh, other sort of surgical interventions being done on you, at least from a Judaic legal perspective. But once you are deemed to be a goses, Healthcare providers are prohibited from doing things that would either hasten your demise or prolong unnecessarily your dying process. 72 hours, where did that come from? So 72 hours is, is an interesting concept. Uh, it was really championed in the 1970s, uh, and uh, it's been uh, promulgated by uh, Orthodox Jewish bioethicist, J. David Bleich being one of them. He's a great sage. Uh, very knowledgeable, but the, he bases it on uh, rabbinic literature going back into the Talmudic times. So about 1,400 years ago, uh, there's some uh, conversation about it. But it's, it's unclear precisely about uh, whether the 72-hour mark is actually what uh, halakha has said or established Along the, uh, over the last 1,400 years. There's a wonderful article on this, on the, uh, on the term of the Gosses, uh, by Jeffrey Rubenstein. He's a professor from NYU, and it's been published in the Journal of Jewish Ethics just in the last couple of years, looking at the 72-hour definition of the Gosses. 
So there are many things that can be done to a patient as they are going through their dying process. One is the question of, are you permitted to withdraw interventions? So what might be some of the interventions that people often withdraw from dying patients in their final days? So hydration, nutrition are typical ones. What other sorts of things? Antibiotics. I'm sorry? Other kinds of pharmacological interventions like chemotherapy, as well as breathing tubes as well. Um, and so this, this uh, text comes from uh, um, the Shulchan Aruch, and specifically the Mapa, uh, the commentary on the Shulchan Aruch, who writes this very famous piece here, that it's forbidden to do anything that brings about the acceleration of death, even for, for one whose dying is taking a long time, and does not have the capacity to withdraw, to ultimately final, uh, to die. However, if there's some factor which is preventing the exit of the soul, such as the sound of a nearby wood chopper or salt that is placed underneath the tongue, and these things are impeding the death, it is permissible to remove those things, because in doing so, one actively does nothing but removing an obstacle that prevents a natural demise. So the sound of a wood chopper could be likened to those things, stimulation from the environment that is keeping somebody alive. Salt placed under your tongue could be those things that are inserted into the body that keep the organs alive. And so Isserles, 500 years ago, is giving us permission to withdraw both kinds of stimuli. Uh, so as to allow a patient to achieve a natural demise. What about palliation? What is palliation? Palliation is to... Make comfortable? Correct. Palliative care is to make somebody comfortable. And it, to palliate actually comes from uh, an ancient word that means to put a mask on, to, to masquerade. And so in other words, you're not dealing with the causes of the pain, you're dealing with the symptom of the pain. And uh, so this has ancient roots, as old as the Bible, that we are to give strong drink to one who is perishing and wine to those whose life is bitter. So in other words, palliate them. Mask their pain and their discomfort. And it's picked up by Maimonides uh, in his Mishneh Torah, where he talks about somebody who's been convicted of a capital crime. This convict is given a granule of frankincense dissolved in a cup of wine in order to rip his knowledge about his condition and he should become drunk. And only in that situation uh, may he be executed. In other words, if a, if a convicted criminal is to be palliated before he is to be executed, then in other words, we're giving compassion upon somebody who is slated to die, then all the more so perhaps for those patients uh, who are otherwise innocent, they too uh, merit palliation. Now here's perhaps the most interesting set of questions, which is what does Judaism say about assisting somebody to die? And all of contemporary Jewish bioethicists who write on this topic will look at one specific text, and that is from the Babylonian Talmud, Tractate Avodah Zarah, page 18a. It is the story of Rabbi Hanania ben Teradion. And this I want us to spend a few moments looking at. This, it, it's a long story. And so let's take a few moments. 
The story goes this way. They said that only a few days had passed since the passing of Rabbi Yossi ben Kisma, when all of the elite of Rome went to bury him and eulogize him with a great eulogy. Upon returning, those citizens found Rabbi Hanania ben Teradion was sitting at an engaging in Torah, convening substantial gatherings with a Torah scroll resting on his lap. So they brought him and wrapped him in the Torah scroll. They placed piles of twigs around him and lit them aflame. They brought tufts of wool soaked in water and placed them upon his heart so that his soul would not depart quickly. So why is this? The story continues. But before we get to the continuation, why is this an interesting beginning here? Correct. We don't know uh, how old he is. We don't know whether he's healthy or not. But we do know that he was engaging in Torah with, with lots of folks around him, and he had a Torah scroll on his lap. Why are those three details important for this story about Rome-occupied Palestine? He was studying. Pardon? Because he was studying. Well, he was studying. Was he studying Correct. In Rome-occupied Palestine, it was illegal for minority religions to preach and teach publicly. It was a capital crime to do that. So Rabbi Hanania's best friend, Rabbi Yossi ben Kisma, had just died. And so is he distraught? Is he mourning and he is also wanting to die and so he's engaging in what is otherwise a capital crime? Is he knowingly doing something that will get him the death penalty? We don't know, but we do know that he's engaging in something that's wrong. The, now what's interesting is what do the Romans do with him? Well, they bring him into a public space, they put him on a funeral pyre, and they lit it aflame. Not only that, they take tufts of wool and they put it on his chest cavity. But so they that wrapped him in the Torah scroll. They wrapped him in the Torah scroll. You what? Really shouldn't be sitting in the Torah scroll on the Uh-huh. So we'll see. You so we'll see how that plays out. His daughter was there, and she has a conversation with him saying, Father, to see you this way. And he replies to her, Were I to be burned alone, it would be a difficult matter. But now, as it's me who burns and the Torah scroll is being burned with me, the one who will address the affront to the Torah scroll will also address the affront to me. So he has a conversation with his daughter about... About the fact that he's being killed, but he's not dying alone. He's not dying alone, but this is a religiously significant moment. And he's bequeathing to her what his convictions are. It's like an ethical will. Daddy, daughter, conversation. This is what our family holds dear. He has another conversation. His students come up to him and say, teacher, what do you see? And he replies to his students, the parchment burns, but the letters soar. They say, open your mouth and the fire will enter you. To which he responds, it is better that the one who takes it is the one who gave it. One should not injure oneself. We'll unpack. Isn't this part of the liturgy on Yom Kippur? Exactly. In Ele Askara, the ten martyrs, 
uh, on Yom Kippur. Very good point. This Rabbi Hanani ben Teradion is one of the ten martyrs, indeed. But he's not done yet. He has a third conversation with the executioner who comes to him and says, Teacher, if I increase the flames and remove the tufts of wool from your heart, will you bring me to the olam haba, the world to come? He says, Yes. And the executioner says, Swear to me. So he swears. And so immediately the executioner increases the flame, removes the tufts of wool from his heart, and his soul quickly departs. And the executioner even jumped and fell into the fire. But the story is not done yet. A bat kol, a heavenly voice comes and says, Rabbi Hanania ben Teradion and the executioner have both been assigned to the olam haba, to the world to come. And Rabbi Judah Nasi comes along and he cries and says, some acquire their eternal reward in one moment and some acquire it through many years of struggle. Contemporary Jewish bioethicists read this sugya, this story, and how they read it will I, it shows whether they give a thumbs up or a thumbs down on assisting in somebody dying. And they do so by reading and highlighting certain segments of the story. There are those who highlight this part of the conversation that Hananiah has with his students, where they say, open your mouth so the fire can kill you. With, through what? In what fashion? Suffocation or asphyxiation. But he responds by saying, actually, the one who gave it should take it. One should not injure oneself. So contemporary bioethicists read his response as saying, one should not commit suicide. Or they say, one should not engage in physician-assisted suicide. Or one should not engage in passive euthanasia, which is to be involuntarily euthanized or to engage in active euthanasia. In other words, you shouldn't be giving it against, uh, into a patient either. What's so interesting to me is that it doesn't say anything about killing oneself. His principle is one should not injure oneself. <laughs> Hebrew has verbs for to kill, and he never uses the verb to kill. He says one should not injure oneself. There are other bioethicists who read this part of the conversation that Hanania has with the executioner, where the executioner says, if I increase the flames and remove the tufts of wool, will you bring me to the olam haba, to the world to come? Now, I wonder, how did a Roman executioner know about a Jewish religious goodie like the olam haba? It's really interesting. Is he trying to convert? Is this a quid pro quo? It's interesting. But how do Jewish bioethicists read it? They see the removal of the tufts of wool as passive euthanasia. If you remove those things that are keeping somebody alive, that is like withdrawing. And we saw the, the texts about withdrawing interventions. If, however, you focus on the fact that he's going to increase the flames, make it hotter, that is active euthanasia. You're now pumping into this dying patient, that which will actually kill him. So that extra dose of morphine. And then there are other bioethicists who read the whole conversation between the executioner and Hanania, and they see that, yes, on the one hand, Hanania agrees, he assents to the plan, and therefore, for these bioethicists, thumbs up on both kinds of euthanasia, voluntary and involuntary euthanasia. 
There are others who say, well, actually, he can't do anything but agree with the executioner because he's a flame. He can't disagree with him, so he's under duress. And therefore, for those bioethicists, thumbs down on both forms of euthanasia. So I hope all of this shows you that at least on this story of, uh, of Rabbi Hanani ben Teradion being killed by the Romans, there is great ambivalence in the text itself as well as ambiguity uh, about whether to intervene or not to intervene. For the daughter, he says, don't intervene. This is a divine matter. To the students, he says, definitely don't intervene. And to the executioner, he says, yes, please intervene and hasten my demise. So there's, there is conversation, yes, uh, and that is the story that I tell in this book called Narratives and Jewish Bioethics, where I unpack this story and the many other stories. In fact, Rabbi Hanani Teradion doesn't die just once in the Judaic textual tradition, he dies four times. And this story is actually the furthest one away from the guy who actually lived. He lived around 200 CE, this story that we just read is about 500 years later. And if you've ever played telephone, if you've ever played that game where you try and convey a message through the generations, it gets augmented and layered and layered with fanciful uh, details. So is the story that from the Babylonian Talmud, which is 500 years after uh, Hanania actually lived, to what degree is it true? It begs the question. But that's the story that I tell in this book, if any of you are interested. Now let's go on to a couple of other chapters, uh, not in the book, but in the conversation tonight, about how do you certify when somebody has actually died? So we need to now ask not the question, when does dying begin, but what is death? What is the definition of death? So one possibility is that it's a terminus. Boom, done, nothing else. Period, at the end of the life. We don't know what happens beyond it. For some of us, we see death as the failure of the organism to maintain its living composure. However, you could also say that death is a state. You've probably heard people say, she is dead, or Uncle Harry has been dead for X, Y, or Z years. That is a state of existence, albeit not a corporeal one. Some of us think death is a liminal moment. Liminal meaning a doorway from one kind of existence to another existence, and it's just that doorway. For others of us, we might think that death is an achievement. Frankly, that every organism is designed to senesce and die. That's what our telomeres do in our cells. It is the ultimate achievement of the organism. So it's not a failure, but a success of the organism reaching its ultimate demise. And for those of us who pay close attention to the activity that goes on inside the cells and even into the smaller units of the body, there's a lot of activity that goes on inside a body even as it is dead. So is death actually not just an achievement but a verb in and of itself? So those are some of the options out there in the theory land. What does Judaism have to say about it? 
Well, Judaism has a, a variety of different ways of t certifying that somebody has died. One is by making sure that they, they no longer are breathing, and that has biblical roots. Later on, in the rabbinic period, they said that if you don't have a heartbeat, that is demonstrative of death. Later on, they said we should put both of these together, cardiovascular definition. If you have neither, um, if, you have, if you don't have either cardio or vascular, then you are certainly dead. And in the last 30 or 40 years, the definition of brain death has now been embraced by most streams of modern Jewry. The idea of brain death was established by an ad hoc committee at Harvard in 1968, uh, but it's taken many decades for it to be uh, embraced. So once you have been certified to die, what can you do with a dead body? Can you actually engage in an autopsy? Can you go in and discern why somebody died? For a long time, there was a great trepidation among Jews because they thought this is what autopsy would look like some sort of surgical theater, and it would be a grotesque and gruesome and somber affair. However, uh, there are overlying principles that say the kavod hamet, the honor of the dead, rule that it is impermissible to cut a dead body. Uh, why? Because we need to quickly bury that person. Uh, no benefit may be derived from a corpse, and nor are you allowed to violate a corpse. In, uh, in itself. And these are Judaically, halakhically uh, spelled out principles based upon the, or those are um, actions that are based upon this underlying principle. Thankfully, most autopsies are not as grotesque as that, as that previous uh, rendition, but a little bit more hygienic and calm as in this rendition from Rembrandt. And there are other overriding principles of chesed, or compassion, and pikuach nefesh, of saving a life. And these principles suggest that doing an autopsy is permissive. Why? Well, one, if the law says so, dina demalchut dina, the law of the land is the law. Um, if three physicians cannot ascertain the precise cause of this patient's death, then yes, you may actually go ahead and cut open a particular patient to see if you can uh, physically discern. Uh, if uh, the physicians say that others with this condition can be saved by cutting into this one patient, so you're going to be saving somebody else's life from the knowledge that's derived from this dead patient, then go ahead and cut, and especially if it was hereditary, and you can safeguard uh, relatives, future offspring, um, by doing autopsy. All of these uh, are going to uh, give permission to engage in cutting into a dead body for those overarching principles. What about transplanting organs? At, these three principles are again at play. The principle of kavod hamet is a conservative or restricting principle that says, well, let's not transplant organs. On the other hand, the competing Principles of chesed and pikuach nefesh, of compassion and saving a life, suggest, yes, maybe we should. There are two kinds of transplantation, living donors. I know of somebody in this room who is a living donor uh, of an organ. Uh, and it is understood uh, from Jewish uh, principles to be a supreme charity, but it is not an obligation. What about cadaveric donors? In other words, from dead bodies. Well, 
it is not only voluntary, it's not just voluntary of not standing on the blood of your neighbor, but a commanded obligation, according to most contemporary Jewish bioethicists. There has been some resistance within Orthodox Jewry about doing cadaveric donors, but there is something called the Halachic Organ Donor Society, HODS, which is trying to make a very uh, impassioned plea uh, in those communities to embrace these uh, permissive principles rather than the conservative, uh, small c, conservative Kavod Hamet principle uh, to promote cadaveric uh, donors, organ transplantation. So those are just some of Jewish perspectives on final interventions at the end of life. Questions, comments? Talking about the three physicians needed to um, to certify. To certify. Does that happen in Israel? Uh, for autopsies? Yeah. I don't know. Does I don't know happen, what happens. Does it happen in um, religious communities here? I, from what I have studied, I think that that is the overarching uh, operating principle. Whether it actually occurs in halakhically bounded communities, I don't know. But according from the literature that I've read in bio, Jewish bioethics, this is the operating principle, whether it occurs in, in hospitals or in forensic uh, morgues, I don't know. Do not resuscitate DNR. Mm -hmm. um, there's a, a number of sort of variations to that physician assisted involvement, but Arizona only deals <clears throat> What's the position as far as whether you've reached this sort of terminal state or are you still up if you decide, well, I've gone through this treatment before, I don't ever want to do it again, no matter what, <clears throat> and you decide to um, sign the DNR, is there some ethical issues or so uh, there are going to be some uh, teachers in Jewish bioethics uh, who will say that um, every effort should be made to prolong somebody's uh, existence. And so uh, irrespective of whether somebody has signed a DNR or not, uh, we need to go ahead, resuscitate, uh, keep them plugged in, etc. Because every second of existence is infinitely holy. Um, and so for them, um, exceptional interventions, heroic efforts, et cetera, uh, that all should be applied to a patient. There are others who say, on the contrary, quantity of life, while important, is not as important as quality of life. And therefore, if a patient has signed DNR uh, protocols or has made that known, uh, and or has made that known to, to loved ones, um, that that should be the overarching uh, guidance in a healthcare uh, situation or an emergent situation where a patient has um, coded uh, and should therefore guide uh, the, the non-intervention, the non-application of resuscitation uh, interventions at that moment. Because quality of life for that patient uh, trumps uh, the, the quantity of life impulse. So it really depends whom you ask, which Jewish bioethicists that you ask. Those that really champion the notion of quantity of life versus those who champion the, the notion of quality of life.
Um, two questions. First, in 2014, when Atul Gawande wrote Immortal, and everyone has talked about that book since, has there been anything else that's emerged on a similar level that's been a, kind of a discourse shaper in the last few years? Um, his book, I think, should absolutely be read in, um, by anybody who's getting married, uh, because I think partners really need to uh, know what their, uh, their partner wants uh, for dying moments. Um, I think it would be a great book for uh, synagogue um, education, adult education, um, to, to have the opportunity to have these more communal conversations as well as private ones. Uh, are there other books of that sort? Um, uh, Paul Kalaniti's book, uh, When Breath Becomes Air, is a beautiful, if not tragic, story uh, about somebody um, in, in their dying moments and, and di diagnosis, uh, misdiagnosis and care. Um, there are other poignant stories. Um, uh, on Living, I think, is another one that was recently come out, uh, and I'm blanking on the author's name. Uh, but I think uh, Atul Gawande's book has uh, definitely been um, a watershed moment in popularizing the need for these difficult conversations about end-of-life care, uh, especially as we have an aging population, especially as the sandwich generation uh, matures and needing to take care of young ones as well as elderly. Uh, I think it would be good for everybody to be familiar with that resource. I'm sorry if you addressed this when I stepped out of the room, but this is something Robbie Berman Hodes is always kind of vocal about, and I want to hear your view, which is that you know, every month you see something in the news, oh, um, brain-dead person comes back to life. And he says, no, that's a misdiagnosis. No one has ever come back from brain death. Um, is, is, that, is that your understanding as well? And, which is relevant to the world you're in the conversation, of course. Yes. Uh, so I, I don't know of anybody who has uh, uh, woken up from uh, once they have been diagnosed as brain dead. Is that that? There are other forms of um, suppressed consciousness and brain activity from which people have emerged, but n nobody that I know of uh, who has um, emerged from being qualified as brain dead, uh, either whole brain stem uh, whole brain or brain stem, uh, brain death. Yeah, so, so those, I think, um, are hyperbolic stories in the media. The media uses hyperbole? <laughs> from what I understand, from time to time, yes. Well, there's a lot more here uh, to, to be unpacked. Each one of these uh, little chapters or slides uh, can be a whole course. <laughs> investigating not only what is the medical circumstance, but what are contemporary secular bioethicists saying on it, and then what does Judaism have to say, both Jewish law as well as Jewish ethics and bioethics in particular have to say on one of these topics. So uh, I look forward to continuing the conversation. Thank you. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.